0: Welcome to Business Leaders Podcast. We're here live at HM Capital's Group office in Denver, Colorado. I'm your host, Bob Rourke, and today on Business Leaders Podcast, where we interview some of the best and brightest business owners and entrepreneurs in and around the state of Colorado. We talk about the ins and outs of running a business and being an entrepreneur. Think of this as your back-of-the-nap MBA that doesn't cost you tens of thousands of dollars in tuition taught by the top business leaders and entrepreneurs in the state of Colorado. The folks that are doing it, not talking about it, every day. We talk about what to do, and as importantly, what not to do about growing, running, or starting a business. On the show today, we're fortunate to have as our guest, Ben Maxwell. He's the founder of HM Capital Group. He's a third-generation entrepreneur and has been going at it ever since entering the workforce in 1999. He started HM Capital in 2002 mm-hmm. as an infield real estate development firm that focuses on the Denver metro area. HM Capital has experience in both residential and commercial development, lending, construction management, design and brokerage. At HM Capital, Ben wants to be proud to drive through the communities in 10 to 20 years from now and point to the long-standing projects they helped create and are still involved in. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Super. Well, how on earth did you ever get started in this business?
1: <laughs> well, I was uh, fortunate enough when I was a kid to learn a little bit of it from my grandfather and my dad. My grandfather was a big commercial general contractor in Kansas City. Built small bank buildings and hospital buildings and uh, things of that nature. And then my dad took that business over when I was young and kind of got into the development business, the commercial development business. Um... Through the mid '80s, and then has uh, um, still been involved in real estate since then. So I learned a lot of the business side of it from him. And then when I uh, in high school in the winters and summers, I had a lawn mowing business. So I had always worked for myself and um, loved working for myself. But in the winters, I worked for my next door neighbor, who was a custom home builder, spec builder uh, in Kansas City. So I kind of learned the carpentry trade from him. And then uh, I went to college for about a year and a half, successfully dropped out of uh, a few colleges, and then uh, moved to Denver, uh, fell in love with it, and started a construction company right away. So we had a subcontracting business where I had framers and drywallers and trim carpenters and things of that nature. We were subcontracting. And a couple of years after that, we bought uh, bought my first fix and flip over in the old Baker neighborhood on... What year was that Uh, that was 2002 okay um so we bought uh first ever flip um and uh did most of the work ourselves swinging hammers in there and and, uh got lucky, made quite a bit of money and was kind of hooked and addicted to real estate ever since
0: there really wasn't much of a fix and flip market in in that time frame was there
1: you know it was uh there weren't as many people as Uh, doing it right now. I think, you know, obviously we call it the HGTV effect in our business. There's a lot of people that are in the business now that um, weren't back then. Um, But there was still quite a few, um, uh, quite a few professionals doing it. Uh, It just wasn't nearly as popular back then, for sure. Um, We made some good money on that one and uh, went from doing one to doing two and kind of grew it, grew the business from there.
0: You know, it, it, I think about it, one of my part-time jobs back when I was a kid mm-hmm. was construction site cleanup. Yeah. You know, I did that in the winter, and, and like you, I mowed yards mm-hmm. in the summer as well. Yep. You know, yeah. I, in, being an entrepreneur, what do you think the lessons were that were passed down between your dad and your granddad that basically it started this entrepreneurial bug in you?
1: I learned a lot of good valuable lessons my grandfather was a you know extremely hard worker always willing to be the first guy out there um, the hardest one out there and making sure that uh, um, the job got done and uh, my dad taught me a lot of good lessons on one being very detail oriented on financials what um, numbers really looked like not lying to myself about you know what a um, you know, projecting what I think things are going to be cost or um, be worth, but really know the facts. So um, I learned a lot from both of them in that regard. And then I learned a lot about just hard work and good quality instruction from my um, neighbor, Kevin. Um, so I learned a lot of different valuable lessons from a lot of different people. My, my viewpoint has always been that I'm not the smartest guy in the room and I want to learn from those that you know, have more experience and learn hard lessons the easy way instead of instead of the hard way. So learn from those who've already been through it as much as possible. Not yeah. that I haven't had my own, you know, hard lessons. I call them my master's degrees that I've paid for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tuition as yeah, you go. Tuition, tuition. tuition. paying yeah. tuition.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, if the folks are going, so what is HM Capital do. So in in a thumbnail sketch, what is it that you do and who do you serve?
1: Absolutely. So our businesses has definitely evolved over the years. You know, we started out uh, in 2002, we were doing all fix and flip properties. Um, We started out doing a few, then we were doing 10 or 20 a year, and then we were doing 30 or 40 a year. Uh, We moved to doing some new construction stuff in 2006 and 2007. Um, doing some new. Uh, and all this at the time, we kept some properties as long-term cash flow rentals, but a majority of the stuff we did was for sale. Then 2008, 2009, when the financial crisis hit, I actually raised my first private equity fund and came out with a private placement the week Madoff was arrested. So it was a good time to uh, raise private cash <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: Am I sensing a recurring theme here? Yeah,
1: right. It was good timing. Great timing. <laughs> Uh, but we actually were successful. We raised $4 million of equity and we, had, and we raised $4 million of debt financing. And at the time, so 2009, 10, 11, we did a large amount of fix and flips again. So we moved back from new construction back to doing fix and flips. And then 2012, 2013, we kind of wound that fund down. Uh, we raise separate smaller private equity funds now for different projects um, and focused mostly on new construction. So we build anywhere between 20 and 80 new residential units a year. And over the past six months, we've kind of converted a majority of our uh, projects from build and sell developments to build and hold. So more uh, long-term cash flow, long-term rental projects. And we've also expanded more into multi-unit as well as mixed-use projects. So we have a couple of uh, two big mixed-use projects where we're redeveloping entire city blocks, one over in Park Hill that's got retail, restaurant, office, uh, a few apartments, some townhomes, all for rent. And then another big project over in the Sunnyside neighborhood, we're remodeling an existing 45,000-square-foot office building for office and retail, and then building some uh, building 33 rental townhome units there as well. So we've kind of expanded from just, you know, we started out as small fix and flip, selling three and $400,000 houses, and now we do everything from um, building, you know, one single-family home and the $900,000 price point to building multi family you know, 16-unit buildings that we're um, renting for long-term cash flow, uh, and as well as these large, uh, you know, Twenty-five million plus redevelopment projects, so we're, we we kind of have the whole uh, the whole board covered.
0: When we talked in the very beginning, you do infill development. Mm-hmm. Some folks may not be familiar with that term. Yeah,
1: so infill development basically means uh, taking a piece of ground that's inside of uh, city city limits of Denver and repurposing it for something that's maybe higher and better use. So in a lot of cases, it's um, Older buildings. Typically, we don't tear down anything that's got historical value. That's not our uh, RMO. A lot of people do that. That's not really our MO. We typically like to save that kind of stuff. But buying stuff that's been beat down or structurally um, unstable or just flat out not viable in today's market and tearing it down and repurposing it because the zoning allows for more density or a higher value project and the land really is worth more than what the existing structures that are on the land are worth. So we've um, basically, it's just, you know, development development that happens within the city on an existing parcel that's already had a prior use or a prior life.
0: You know, at, at this segment, I thought we would try to take in and, and drill down a little bit for the folks out there going like, If I wanted to reach out to you or how would I know if I'm a potential customer or if I own a piece of property, how would they know that they would be a potential client or customer of yours?
1: You know, the people that we work with the most are um, kind of twofold. People that either want to just sell their land outright or somebody who wants to... put up property or maybe joint venture with us on a project where they own some land and they think that it, it's uh, underutilized. So typically the people that are selling to us have either a home or an old um, commercial building that's on quite a bit of land um, or, you know, even a, a small city lot, but the house is underutilized. The house is uh, livable or not livable, but barely livable. So something that... Um, really needs to be torn down there's no historical significance to it there's no part of the property that uh, uh, can't be developed so it's anybody who really has a um, property that they think they can um, that can be utilized in a much higher better use than what's currently okay currently being
0: used for you you obviously have ability to multitask and manage projects and so on Mm -hmm. Um, and in our chat, you have a particular culture that you're trying to promote within your firm with all the various projects and all yeah. the quantity of people you have. How mm-hmm. do you take in maintain
1: the culture in your firm? Inside the firm? I, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is um, really having fun and enjoying our, our time here every day. You know, I, I definitely promote that work should be work, but it also should be a good time. Everybody should enjoy what they do. And so... I want to make sure that everybody here, um, as well as all the contractors and third-party um, vendors that we use, all are paid well, enjoying themselves and have a, a good quality of life. You know, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. Um, it's easy to get wrapped up in the fact we've got a lot of projects. We manage probably about, you know, fifty or sixty million or so in capital. Um, it's easy to get wrapped up in the stress and day to day, but really trying to focus on the overall, you know, big picture and picking projects that we really, as a group, enjoy. You know, we don't want to build just everyday average properties. We want to build stuff that's fun, that's cool, that's different, um, that really, you know, the inside finishes, the exterior finishes are something that we can be proud of. You know, we don't want to be. You know, we never want to find ourselves on Denver's, uh, you know, Denver Fugly, which is a, a website that tracks ugly development going around Denver. You know, we actually have only been on there once, and it was for a project that was highlighted as this is good architecture, not bad architecture. So that's what we want to be proud of. We want to make sure that our stuff really stands out and... We provide a good value, not only to our, um, the people we've sold houses to in the past, the people we rent homes to, uh, our commercial tenants. You know, we're not, um, we're not looking to, you know, for my partners and I, and for especially myself and everyone who works here, you know, bottom line is definitely important, but it's not everything. Um, We wanna make sure that we feel that if everybody is paid well, If everybody is having fun, then our project turns out better. Our homes turn out better. Um, If we're diligent about what we pay for land, if we're diligent about um, our costs in between, we can afford to sell homes that are better than the average. We can rent homes that are better than average for average price or less. And that's really our goal is, is to make sure that we're not uh, that we're always providing value to anybody that's um, coming behind us, whether that's a tenant, whether that's somebody we're selling to. Um, so we're giving them the best product on the market at, at average or fair price instead of an over, you know, expensive price.
0: You know, I, I think as as you're talking about the quantity of contractors and, mm-hmm. and the people that you have working and so on, and, you know, how do you take in in a firm as – Fluid, I'd say. I don't mm-hmm. know if fluid's the right word, but we'll call it fluid. Mm-hmm. Attract and retain key people. do. <laughs>
1: um, you know, I think fun is the biggest part of it. Um, you know, I when people want to take vacations, we let them take vacations. We pay everybody probably a little bit more than um, most. But the biggest thing is making sure everybody at least is having enjoying their job or at least one part of their job at least once or twice a week um you know we do stuff together as a group quite a bit um we just took a big contingency down rented a house on the beach in Florida and took a big contingency of contractors and project managers and some of my staff here and their families and kids and went down there for a week and uh, earlier in the year we took a big group of the uh, um my architect and uh, a couple of the guys here from the office and did a uh, um 8 day trip in Spain and went and visited uh, Barcelona and goofed off, and then went and saw one of our factories that uh, that we buy a ton of our materials and mm-hmm. cabinets and tile and plumbing fixtures from. So, really, it's making sure people see, recognize that they're valued, um, that we enjoy them having on the team, um, and that they feel like they have a say and they can really, you know, create their own destiny in some respects as well.
0: You know, I, I was thinking as as you take folks to various places and so on. Mm-hmm. Do you try to structure that much, or is it mostly free flowing once you get
1: there? We're um, mostly free flowing, okay. um, which is um, you know allows people to really. I feel like in a structured environment, we do have some stuff that we try and do, some dinners out and things of that nature. But um, especially the one with the kids. I mean, it was fun. We just the kids all got to hang out and get to know each other and play at the pool and the beach, you know, for a week and. Um, it was really amazing to see everybody just get to know each other on more of a personal level rather than just a, um, employee, employer, you know, contractor, subcontractor
0: basis. As you talk about the, the evolution of your business, mm-hmm. um, what would you attribute or the key thing that you did that allowed you to grow your top line revenue? What do you think was the key thing you did?
1: I think the biggest success I had in top line revenue was learning how to really manage and raise private capital. Um, I think a lot of people in our business um, try and do it with their own money, try and do it with their own uh, capital to start, which is great. And you know, I started with about $10,000 in cash and um, some good luck. Um, but the business really grew when I learned how to um, our business from really not just a construction company and a real estate business but really a capital management business and that's why we uh, you know the old uh, company name when we first started was uh, Lighthouse Investment Group and that's why we changed to HM capital in 2012 because I realized that raising capital allowed us to have the volume and the um, appropriate capital structure to really make quality and good decisions you know I feel there's, you know, in our business, there's a lot of different strategies and a lot of them that I took early in my career, a lot of good lessons learned, like I talked about, in, you know, from 2007, 2008 time period. We were fortunate enough in 2008 and to pivot fast enough that we made enough money to cover our mistakes that we made in 2007, 2008, but a lot of people weren't. And the biggest thing I learned was having flexible capital, flexible patient capital, where I knew I had the bandwidth to make quality decisions. You see a lot of people make decisions based on cash flow in the bank, based on, uh, in our business, there's a term called hard money loans, where you're borrowing um, 80, 90, even sometimes 100% of the cost to do a development project, and you're borrowing at high interest rates. And I did that quite a bit in my early in my career, and I learned very quickly that, the decisions you can make when you have that kind of capital structure are very limited. You know, you have to do this project, you have to get from A to B quickly, you have to sell it, you have to do things that in a perfect world you probably wouldn't do. And um, it's, you know, now we use very low leverage, if any leverage at all on our projects. Um, We've got about 60 million in equity cash That we manage, and against that, we have maybe eight or nine million dollars in debt from bank loans. Um, So we don't use high leverage, we don't use um, um, financing that causes what I call, you know, just mistakes, speculation. You know, we like to do it based on an investment. We have very realistic expectations on what that capital will do. You know, we're not trying to hit home runs every single day, we're just trying to hit. Constantly hit base hits every single day.
0: So. You know, and for the entrepreneur out there, says, mm-hmm. you know, I find myself leveraged. I'm, fi- you know, financed in myself, mm-hmm. and and I, you know, this is the the notion of doing um, financing, like you described. Mm-hmm. How would you know? How did you learn, or what was the steps? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you know, you kind of go, well, uh, that was an evolution. So, it was, it how was, did that arrive at your doorstep?
1: It was definitely an evolution, and it was it came to me kind of. Um, in a way, a lot of things do, I guess, just kind of happened. Um, so one of my partners in 2005, six, was a um, uh, used to work at a large investment bank, and him and I looked at doing a private placement, so um, a Reg D um, private placement financing to raise, basically a way to, to raise capital from just accredited investors um, under a certain amount, a dollar amount. So we looked at doing that in 2007, and kind of started the whole paperwork, went through the whole process of writing a private placement for some higher end development projects that we were working on at the time. Learned the whole process from him, had some good attorneys that we learned, I learned a ton from. And about three quarters of the way through that process, we saw what the market was doing and we ended up bailing on that project because we uh, um, realized that the high end market was uh, deteriorating pretty quickly. And knew we weren't didn't want to raise the money because we knew we couldn't make the projections that we that we thought we could. So we we kind of bailed on that project initially, and then but the the concept of it had just kind of stuck with me. And then the financial crisis hit, and we um, sold some stuff that we had in the hopper. But luckily, I was able to I I didn't try and sell a majority of the stuff that we were finishing. I just rented it. And it covered our mortgages. It covered our cash flow. We had some negative cash flow, but we were able to cover it. Back um, to leverage management. Yep. Back to leverage management. We had high leverage. Unfortunately, at the time, that was you know a lot of the mistakes we had. We had the high leverage at the time. More tuition. Yep. More tuition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's about you know a ten yeah, thousand dollar tuition bill. Yeah, you, right? you either learn from it or it kills you, right? right? Exactly. It, oh yeah. So that was my master's degree in uh, real estate finance. But uh, so mid two thousand eight, we had started doing a ton uh, moved back to doing a lot of fix and flip properties at the time There was a lot of foreclosures you could find foreclosures on every you know corner we were buying probably 40 or 50 units a year and we had different capital structures all over the place we had a partnership with this guy doing four deals and a partnership with this guy doing six deals and this one had high leverage and this one was all cash and this one was one we were just doing the construction for somebody else who was doing it and basically, I realized that that was just not a sustainable model. We had, you know, too many pieces moving in too many different directions. Mm-hmm. And we weren't getting, you know, we were doing a lot of the work. We were finding a lot of the projects, but we weren't getting compensated for it because we didn't have the capital structure in place to to mm-hmm. do it correctly. So that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to try and do this private placement thing again. And uh, hired some good attorneys um, in town and wrote our first uh, um you know, wrote the first successful private placement we did. Um, so we we decided we were going to raise four million dollars in equity and about four million dollars in debt. And at that time, we could buy. Um, that gave us ability to buy eight million dollars worth of property. And with um, that kind of property, we could flip it twice in a year, about two two and a half times a year. So allowed us to buy about sixteen million dollars worth of property a year and turn that um, turn and sell it uh, and make fairly good returns for our investors. So we started out the, uh, um, so we hired the attorneys to raise the money. didn't have a clue what I was doing. I mean, just really didn't have a clue what I was doing. And uh, um, had some great things in there and had some terrible things in that private placement that um, was part of the reason we wound it down. It just didn't have a great structure for us. It had a good structure for the investors, but not a great structure for us. Um, but one again, one of those learning lessons that if you don't just try it and do it, you're never going to see the success. That's been my biggest thing is I'm just willing to give it a shot and see what happens. Courage. And, uh, yeah, courage, for sure. Um, being able to take risks, you know, calculated risks, mm-hmm. but still risks. Uh, and it was interesting. You know, we thought we would get a lot of our current investors to come on board with us, and we didn't. Um, you know, and we ended up just slowly through, you know, referrals and meetings and things of that nature. Um Raise the money over about a six-month time period, you know, just doing lunches. In 2008. 2008. So we literally launched this uh, fund the week Madoff got arrested. So yeah. it was perfect timing, and everybody was highly skeptical, And but we had a track record. You know, I had, at that point... Um, a six-year track record of making profit uh, on a good portion of our deals at that point i think we had lost money on four projects that we had done since 2002 so we were able to take people around and show them hey we've done you know at that point i think we had flipped uh, and or built new about 300 residential units around denver so we had a pretty good track record that's a good track record and, record, yeah. and uh, years of operating and uh everything to me is execution you know we were meticulous and we still are meticulous about execution um Everything comes down to execution in our business and really in any business. It's can you get from A to B and actually get it done? And so we were able to prove to, you know, I think it was about 50 different investors that, uh, um, you know, ranging investments from 25000 to $500,000 uh, raised our $4 million in equity. We got uh, about a $1 million in debt from a, a local bank and about $3 million from a local investor as debt. And uh, that uh, investor, Ralph Nagel, is um, now one of my main partners and still is to this day and probably will be for a long time. So we uh, uh, just gave it a shot, learned a lot of lessons, and then a couple of years later, figured out what we did wrong and, and uh, made some changes and tweaked it and, and really learned, you know, back to your question, that top line wasn't everything. And, and then uh, 2011, we moved from focusing on top-line growth to just bottom-line mm-hmm. growth and just high-quality, high-margin projects. Um, we, With that kind of capital structure, the original way we set it up, we had to do a lot of volume to keep our capital at work and our mm-hmm. earn our preferred returns. And now we don't offer any preferred returns. It's just profit split. So it allows us to make good quality um, investment decisions. We're only buying stuff we really want to buy because it's a good deal. Not because we have to feed this giant machine. That uh, um, if we have money sitting in the bank, it's a negative, not a positive. So,
0: you know, for for you now, if if you were going to do a fundraise now, first off, mm-hmm. you know, we'd have to look for some seminal event, in a marketplace oh. like mm-hmm. a Bernie Madoff. Hopefully, <laughs> we don't see another one of those. Right. But it, how would you characterize the thought process difference between a fundraise now and fundraise then?
1: Fear. Um, you know, back in two thousand eight. Fear was the biggest driving force behind everybody's decision making, you know, that nobody knew where the market was going to go. Um, right now, it's irrational exuberance to some degree. I mean, um, raising capital now is sometimes scarily easy <laughs> right now mm-hmm. because there's so many people chasing yield, so many people looking for alternative investments. Um, obviously, over the years, we've developed our network and now we just go through um higher net worth, larger investment dollars. Um, back then it was, you know, we had to chunk it together with every investor we possibly could. Mm-hmm. Um, so raising money for us is definitely different. But I think if somebody were to go out and raise money now, you know, it's it's a good time to raise funds. I also think it's a good time to um, be prudent about how much capital you raise, how much you really want to put to work right now, because because of where the market is, we were, you know, in 2008, we were at the bottom of the market. It wasn't 100% obvious that it was the bottom of the market, but it was pretty obvious that there wasn't going to be a substantial move from that point, Uh, at least to us. And that's why, and that's the confidence that we um, raised the capital with during that time. We had to have confidence that we knew that you know, if if anything else, the market wasn't going to go down much from that downside point. Downside risk was limited. Yeah, downside risk. You know, in was in
0: thinking about that, it, is there a series of indicators or things that you would notice that would cause you to say, you know, I think that we're on the other side of this exuberance, and we're, is there something that would cause you to slow down or back off?
1: You know, it's it's interesting. We slowed down dramatically about two years ago because we thought, all right, it's it's gone too far too fast since then we've kind of picked back up. I think our mindset has changed. I, I think in the first sale business, I think I 100% agree that the market's gone too far too fast. You know the problem is that there's two different businesses in real estate development. There's the you know development business and then there's a long term buy and hold business. And they're really two completely different businesses, and, and we did the buy uh, the development business for a long time to build our capital wealth, and because it's great for short-term um, accumulation of of cash. But in the long term, every developer goes broke, you know, once or twice because they get the market timing wrong. Right now, I wouldn't want to be developing much for sale product because there's just so much. Um, I wouldn't say froth in the market, but it's just been a seller's market for so long. There's a lot of sky, a lot of cranes on the horizon. There's a lot of cranes. There's so many apartment buildings. Um, there's some pretty big regulatory changes coming on the uh, townhome development that's been pretty rampant over the past uh, five years. There's a lot of um, condo projects that are finally being proposed with the changes in the legislative um, here in Denver. That's really going to affect how the Um, Denver market really operates over the next few years, and and you could see a lot of inventory flood the market. Um, But that being said, Denver's got a lot of net growth. Denver's got a lot of good quality jobs. And, you know, we've really changed our mindset from the development side. If you're doing for sale, you've got to get the timing right. Because if you don't, most likely your financing isn't set up to buy and hold. Uh, If you get it wrong, you probably can't just rent the projects. You're just going to have to sell it for whatever you can sell it for and move on. Our business is more the buy and hold business. And really, you know, when we started looking at it, like, okay, you know, houses may get five to 10% cheaper at some point in the future, but most likely 10 years from now, homes are going to be worth more than what they are now. And this is really what I call, you know, getting rid of the scarcity mindset. It took me a long time to get rid of that scarcity mindset where it was before it was like, okay, I need to accumulate wealth. I need to accumulate cash. I needed to accumulate everything. And now it's kind of having that mindset of, okay, we have enough. What is the best path forward for the next five to 10 years? How can we maximize those uh, investment dollars and really look at, look at things through a different lens than I've always looked in the past. And really it came down to, um, compounding interest I mean owning real estate is a simple you know just the same as owning stock market Um, it's the difference between day traders and Warren Buffett you know investment strategies the developers, for sale developers are the day traders trying to make quick cash flow or quick cash and um, but don't really care about the underlying fundamentals and what's going on and and then you've got the long-term investors that are really looking at okay what does money really do over a 10 or 20 year period and when you start looking at like at in those terms, the even with one percent appreciation in the market, even uh, in both rents and property values, with where long-term interest rates are, where we can lock in um, some debt financing, you know, sixty percent um, long-term debt financing on some of our projects that are stabilized, um, you can really make some. Some pretty good cash-on-cash cash, uh, returns over a 10 or 20-year period, regardless of if the market goes down, you know, uh, in year two or year three. And then the other thing is, we want to own good quality projects, so we don't want to just buy anything. We want to have good, you know, most cases, brand new projects we've built from the ground up with low maintenance and low vacancy rates. So we can have the best product and still rent it for to at least cover our debt service if the market does turn down. I think we're going to
0: shift gears here just a yeah. little bit and go on a faster side. But the term that sticks out in my mind is
1: patient capital. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a game changer. When you really um, – and that's an expectation setting that, that anybody who's raising money can do is – When you're raising capital, make sure you're raising capital from people who are patient and understand the long term, the long view, not just what are you going to do for me today?
0: Yeah, it's it's a game changer.
1: Yeah, if they're looking for return in 12 to 18 months, it's the wrong guy. It's the wrong guy. Yeah. Yeah, And it's really picking, you know, that's the one thing I would say is picking your investors correctly is way more important than raising all the capital that you want. Because the right guys will come around, the guys or gals will come around, the right companies will come around. And uh, having the right ones is way more important than having the wrong ones at the right amount. That's a postgraduate. That's a, yeah. Post, yeah, that's a PhD.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to go into this section of the podcast, check or hold. Right. Check is yes, hold is, man, not so much. Um, the idea of having a business plan, did you? Yes, to some degree. Okay. Generic one. Generic, mm-hmm. flexible. Equity investors or self-funded. Equity. You, you've yes. talked about that at length. That was, <laughs> that was the pivot point for you. It was. Um, as far as goals and looking out, three-year time frame, five-year time frame. Five. How come?
1: Well, I would have said ten or twenty, but. Oh, okay. Took the long time. you could. <laughs> Patient capital rules. Patient capital. Okay. Better decision making if okay. you're looking longer term. It's. Um, You've got to execute on a day-to-day, one-year-by-one-year basis, but having the 10- to 20-year horizon gives you the ability to make better decisions, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, Cloud-based or local storage? Cloud-based, for sure.
0: Yeah, and and we talked a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. You've been cloud-based for a long time. Wow.
1: Yeah, we made the switch. We went paperless um, uh, partially in 2011, fully in 2012. We've been uh, uh, cloud-based. And... I mean, it's just changed our business dramatically. The availability of information um, quickly to make good decisions, you know, I can pull up any file, any um, subcontractor agreement, any construction budget, any project I've done for the past um, six years within two minutes on my phone while I'm standing outside of another project that might be similar. Or, you know, a contractor calls me while I'm on vacation, you know, uh, in Spain, for example, they can call me with a question and I can literally give them an answer right then and there. And he doesn't have to wait a week and a half for me to get back and look up, um, you know, what's our budget on this project or, you know, things of that nature.
0: Yeah. New meaning of not touching it twice. Right. The inside your business with all the projects, Mm -hmm. uh, piece of software technique that you use to try to help uh, manage the projects
1: that's an interesting question and in change we're kind of going through it was sitting at my uh, lighting supply store the lighting outlet um, not too long ago and, and the owner and I were just chatting and he's like he was talking about redoing his website and he said if you're not ahead you're behind and it was just one of those things that was said in passing and then I it just stuck with me and it kept repeating in my head over, over and over and over again for a couple of months and so we ended up um, Right now, we've been using kind of a piecemeal um, set of software, including Excel, um, some project management software called Build Tools, but nothing really that is working for us comprehensively. So we've actually engaged a company out of uh, um, the Netherlands to build us our own um, online and app-based platform that manages our construction process from start to finish, basically our development process from start to finish. So we've just decided to start from scratch and, and create our own. Well, that answered that question. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: You know, out in the marketplace, um, who would you say is your toughest competitor?
1: Um, you know, there's a lot of competitors um, in a very large space. Uh, there's a lot of big REITs. You know, we keep getting squeezed from both ends. There's a lot of REITs doing the very large projects, uh, and they can operate with other people's capital at rates and, and capital structures that we just can't compete with. Um, there's three or four good players in our uh, same caliber space that, that uh, we all work really well together. And in our business, competition is a good thing mm-hmm. because it helps change and turn over neighborhoods in, in ways that we couldn't do alone. And then I think our toughest competitor really is the um, uh, mom-and-pop uh, you know, guys going out doing three or four or five projects a year um, because there's just so, you know, just a vast number of, of people that are going off on their mm-hmm. own. And I commend them for going out and doing it and, and uh, you know, giving it a shot because that's what it's all about. You know, oh, yeah. having the guts to try it and do it. Yeah, and
0: then hope they don't get run
1: over by an 08. Right, right. Oh, yeah. In looking at your website,
0: mm-hmm. relationship management and win-win for the communities that you're operating in. Yep, absolutely.
1: You know, again, it, it all comes back to our culture of we want to have fun. You know, I the last thing I want to do is fight with the community because we're doing something that they don't want. Um, especially, you know, having a ten or twenty year, you know, horizon on our investments at this you know point in my career, it's really important that we're a part of the community and it's not a we're taking away from a community. Um, so we want we want to build projects that the community is excited and happy about. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to please 100% of people all the time, and I don't have that expectation, but I'm not somebody, you know, there's a lot of, there's a saying in real estate, highest and best use, and our philosophy here at H M Capital is just best use. You know, we don't want to maximize out every single thing that we're doing and have 100 units with no parking, you know, with 50 parking spaces, which a lot of these projects that you see these days are that are really making neighborhoods upset because it's a legitimate concern. And same thing with our two big development projects we have going on now. We're definitely not maxing out the uh, um, density of what we could build there. We want to make sure it's a good, solid, quality development that's going to pay for, you know, that's going to work for us for the next 20 years and going to provide an amenity to the neighborhood. So, um, you know, also we don't want to overcharge for rent just because we can get it. We want to find people, you know, businesses that... Um, we think are worthwhile, that we can really pick the businesses we want to be in the space that we think will make it. And if we're overcharging rent, you know, they're not going to make it very long. Yeah. Having a partnership, Mm -hmm. giving back some. Yeah, Ben, thanks so much
0: for being a guest. What's the best way for them to reach out and and contact you, Ben?
1: Uh, Either through our website, hmcapitalgroup.com, or you can email me at ben at hmcapitalgroup.com. Super.
0: Ben, thanks again for coming on the
1: podcast. Thank you very much. You've been a pleasure.